Go ahead and turn to um, Acts chapter 8 for me, if you would. How many of you are familiar with the name Frank Burasa? You probably aren't, but I thought I'd ask anyway, just in case. Frank Burasa is considered to be probably one of the most prolific and successful counterfeiters in U.S. history. He was a Canadian citizen, um, born in Canada. Um, he started dabbling in crime when he was about 12 years old. He was selling high-end goods to, or stolen goods to his members or his uh, friends at his 200-member, 2,000-member school. Excuse me. Um, he started his own business, working with um, making brake pads and other things, and he was working 12, 16-hour days sometimes. And after doing that for a number of years, decided he was working awfully hard and not making much money, so he wanted to come up with a better way to make money, something that would require maybe less work. So he spent about a year and a half learning about American currency and how to make it from scratch. Much of his time was spent on government websites where they described all the security features that are part of our money. It's kind of a little crazy. Give away your secrets, right? The first obstacle that this guy had to overcome was the paper. If you've ever looked at your money, you notice that our currency is different than most countries in that it's not really paper. It's made out of cotton and linen. It's a very special kind of paper. Not a whole lot of places make it. So the first challenge he had was finding a place that could produce the kind of paper that he actually needed and also produce it with some of the security features that the bills have built into them but something that wouldn't send off a bunch of red flags. And so finally he found a company in Germany that would make him the paper he needed. It was like 25% linen and 75% cotton. And they would embed that little $20, because he did $20 bills, um, put that little US 20 band into it. Now he was able to convince this German company that it was all legit because his company made US bonds. So the German company said, oh, that's cool. Then he had to find another company. The second obstacle was if you look at a $20 bill and you hold it up to the light, you'll notice that, that, that Jackson is not only on the face of that bill, but there's a watermark of Jackson. You can only really see it if you hold it up to the light. So now he had to find a company that could make the printing press that could do that etching. And so he found, I think it was a Swiss company that could do that, had the machine sent over to Germany so that they could properly do that. And then... He had to do a number of other things, including figuring out the software and had of a special kind of software to be able to print the bills and all this kind of stuff. And so he spent about a year and a half, spent about $300,000, and he was all set to go. And in 2010, released his first $20 bill and um, started producing, basically, fake currency for the United States, counterfeit money. Now, he had produced about $250 million worth of $20 bills. And he initially started by doing small distributions to small little crooks in, you know, outside the United States. But to get rid of $250 million when you're doing it in you know, $1 million here and maybe 300000 here or maybe 20000 here, he figured it was going to take him his whole entire lifetime. So he decided to go for the big score and find somebody that could take a big chunk of this money and hooked up with a guy in the United States that just happened to be an undercover police officer in the counterfeit division. And so all of this stuff gradually began to unwind. And he had only actually distributed about a million dollars worth um, of these $20 bills. But from a, from a um, 
accuracy perspective, um, the Fed said that it was nearly impossible to tell his bills from a real bill. And so had he not hooked up with this undercover cop by accident, he likely might have been able to distribute all of it, but he had only distributed about a million dollars of it before they kind of caught on to it. Um, he still had about another $250 million or so tucked away in a warehouse somewhere that they never, they didn't initially find. Well, he thought he was going to be tried in Canada, but then he realized that the United States was going to have him extradited, and he was going to face almost 60 years in prison here. So he got kind of smart and he went, you know, I'm, I imagine those feds probably want to know where the rest of this money is. So he cut a deal with them. He said, I'll tell you where the extra $250 million is if you cut me a deal. The guy spent four weeks in prison, paid a $1,500 Canadian fine, and is walking free today and works as a security expert in counterfeiting. <laughs> Frank Barusa, counterfeiter, prolific. Everything that he produced, those $20 bills that he produced, like I said, were extremely difficult to tell apart from a traditional $20 bill because of building right into them the same security features that the United States government did. We're going to talk about counterfeits today. Um, the text that we're looking at, we're going to meet a man by the name of Simon, and we're going to see in this text these two contrasting ideas. We're going to see Luke con- um, contrast the counterfeit signs and wonders that Simon was performing with the genuine, real article of Philip and the signs and wonders that he did through the Holy Spirit. We're also going to see Luke in a more subtle way, contrast the counterfeit faith of Simon with the real faith of the Samaritans. And so we're going to kind of look at this today. The first portion of our text, our passage here, chapter 8, we see the counterfeit signs and wonders of Simon contrasted with the genuine signs and wonders of Philip. Let's look at this. It's chapter 8, verse um, 9 through 13. Let me just start by reading the first um, couple of verses here. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Simon was a sorcerer. Now, when it comes to the New Testament... This word for sorcerer, this this word for magic here, actually, is used in two different ways. One of them was in a, I'll I'll say, an appropriate, positive way. When you think about the magi, the same word was actually used. These were individuals who paid attention to things like astronomy. They They were observers of reputable sciences, and they used the word magic for that. But another way the word was actually used was specifically when it came to things like conjuring up um, spirits, predicting the future, um, incantations, spells, charms, even summoning demonic spirits. That's where we get the word sorcerer from. And so in this particular instance, Simon would fall into that latter category. He wasn't like the magi pursuing reputable sciences. He was instead a sorcerer, a conjurer who used incantations and spells and charms and would mesmerize the people. Notice the text here tells us that the people were astonished by him. Luke uses the word twice and it means that they were amazed by the things that he could do. 
Luke tells us that this man Simon went about claiming to be somebody great. In other words, he claimed to have these great powers. He had a huge following, everyone it says, from the greatest, or from the smallest to the greatest throughout all of Samaria. It says, paid attention to him. That's more than just being aware of. They looked to this man. They liked to see him. In fact, he was even given a divine title. The Great Power of God. Now the text doesn't really tell us here if that meant they viewed him as God or simply as an agent of God. That's not real clear. But they did associate what he did to the power of the divine. It said he'd been doing this for a long time. They refer to it here specifically as his magic arts now. What I find interesting about this here is I love to watch um, Penn and Teller's Fool Us. It's a magic show on television. Now, you got to be careful with Penn and Teller because some of their programs can be extremely foul mouth. They're basically atheists and, and, and um, can be somewhat foul mouth. But this particular show is very clean and it's somewhat encouraging, meaning they'll have these um, magicians come on and if the magicians can fool Penn and Teller in other words Penn and Teller don't know how they do it then they get a trophy and they get invited to Penn and Teller's show to perform in Vegas and um, it's to be real I love magic but much of it my kids will tell you this you can figure out a lot of it you know Um, but the magic on Fool Us is for the most part oftentimes probably some of the best magic you're going to actually see and part of it may be the audience, Penn and Teller, have been known for years to, to kind of make their secrets known in some respects. But Penn and Teller, the interesting thing about them is they will tell you outright, it's all tricks, it's all gimmicks, they're fooling you because you're stupid. You know, you get these people on that'll, you know, I can read minds, and they try to convince you that they're a mind reader, or, you know, that they really did make a helicopter appear or disappear. And Penn and Teller, just, they just tell you outright, yeah, bunch of idiots, we're fooling you! It's all trickery. Simon didn't do that. Simon's out there performing his signs and his wonders and it's all supernatural. He's got these special powers. He's somebody great. And so that's who we're introduced to here. Now sorcery was actually pretty common in the ancient Near East. It wasn't something unusual. You might remember Moses. Remember what happened with Moses? Turn to Exodus chapter um, 7 with me. Exodus chapter 7. When Moses goes up against the Pharaoh, God had given Moses the ability to perform signs and wonders to be able to convince the Pharaoh that he was indeed sent by God. And so we have Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. And I love this part. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So sorcery was fairly common in Egypt and other parts of the ancient Near East. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, or I'm sorry, 18, the Lord specifically bans the use of sorcery. And why would you do that? Because it was common. Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Malachi all warned against sorcery because, again, it was common. Paul not only warned about it, 
But Paul actually had his own encounter with that. Look at Acts chapter 13. Just a few pages over. Acts chapter 13. When they had gone through, this is verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the prodigal um, Sagius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Eliamus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proscule from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of deceit and fraud, that's a reference to his sorcery, you are the son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seek, seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the pronscule believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So here's this magician here who's going about it, says, deceiving the people. Now why is that such a bad thing? There's many reasons why the Lord condemns sorcery, including its connection to demonic spirits, but another is that signs and wonders performed, though counterfeit, are fraudulent imitations of the divine. When somebody... You know, tells you that they're able to read your mind. That's something only God can do. When they tell you that they can make something appear out of nothing or appear out of thin air, it's only something that God can do. There's fraud. There's deceit. Even, you know, Penn and Teller will tell you, we are going to defraud you. We are going to fool you. We're using tricks. Well, most people aren't that honest. When you go see a fortune teller or a tarot card reader, or a mystic. They don't tell you all that. Now they might be deceived themselves as to the real source of what's behind that. But many of them are just fraudsters mimicking the divine. Only the attributes and powers that God himself has. Now Luke is going to contrast what Simon was doing with Philip. Take a look at verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. I want you to jump down now to verse 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So like Simon, Philip had garnered substantial attention by the Samaritans, partly because of the signs and the wonders and the miracles that he was performing. But there's significant differences between what Philip was doing and what Simon was doing. One of the differences was the source. Now, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly here that Simon was performing these miracles by the Holy Spirit, but how do we know that he was? 
Well, because throughout the book of Acts, we see that that is the source behind the apostles and the early church doing the signs and wonders. It's always attributed to the Holy Spirit, the work that God does through the Holy Spirit and through the individual. We see the Spirit's activity also in Philip's life. If you look at verse 29, he gets taken away by the Spirit, we're told, if you want to... Read that briefly. Then the Spirit said to Philip, I'm sorry, this is the instance where he talks to him. The Spirit said to Philip, go up, join his, or this chariot. We have the Spirit speaking to Philip here. A little bit later on in the chapter, verse 39 is when he gets taken away. The Holy Spirit whisks him away, supernaturally, to another location. So twice in this passage, the Holy Spirit is referenced as being what is directing and leading Philip. We could assume the same with what he's performing, because again, everywhere else in the book of Acts, we have such things attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. So it was different than what Simon was doing. Another difference is that Simon used the counterfeit signs and wonders that he was performing to promote himself as some great man, possibly even a god of some kind. But how did Philip use these abilities? He used them to point people to Christ and to authenticate the gospel. You notice in verse 5, it says that he was proclaiming Christ to them. So while Philip is out, or while Simon is out there doing these great signs and wonders, and he's saying, look at the great man that I am, Philip is out there saying, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Notice in verse 12, it says that he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So Simon's acts drew attention to himself. It was for his own self-promotion. While Philip's miraculous events and acts drew people to Jesus Christ. That's what set him apart. That's the difference between counterfeit and genuine. What's our takeaway from this? There's all kinds of counterfeits in our world today. There's no question about it. There are counterfeit philosophies and religions. We come across them all the time. There are counterfeit religious leaders. We certainly come across those all the time, do we not? There's even counterfeit gospels and counterfeit forms of Christianity. All of them are designed by the enemy to look like the real thing, but ultimately to deceive us and to lead us away from the one true God and the only way of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. How many of you are familiar with the, with the group DC Talk? Those of you that grew up in the 80s and 90s? I don't know if you've seen what, what's come out recently here, but DC Talk, I believe they founded out of Liberty University back in the early early 80s. They were quite popular when I was in college, shortly after I became a Christian. In fact, back then there wasn't a whole lot of Christian... Most of the Christian music was very, let's say, not very contemporary, very old school. And so DC Talk came out kind of this... Um, rap type group, you know, and then it kind of became more grunge, I guess is the best way to describe it. But at the time, very, what we'll call cutting edge, very influential in Christian music. Some of you kids maybe specifically know who Toby Mac is. He was one of the founding members. Well, for about 20 years, they, they basically did their thing, traveled all over the place. I think they, I think they broke up somewhere around 2000 or whatever, and then there was talk of a reunion back a few years ago, but I don't know if they ever did that or not. Well, just recently, in the last week or two, um, one of the members, uh, his last name is Max, I don't remember what his first name is, um, just came out and sort of announced that he was deconstructing his faith. 
he was now what is referred to as an ex-evangelical. An ex-evangelical refers to ex-evangelicals who have abandoned much of the faith that they've proclaimed for most of their Christian life. And he has now come out and he said, I've been deconstructing for a while. And he's now pronounced his, um, his uh, acceptance of homosexuality, the LGBT, LGBT lifestyle, the whole Black Lives Movement, and so many of the, of the liberal causes that we see that he's now thrown his weight behind. And when asked, well, but are you abandoning your faith in Christ? His answer was, no, I worship the universal Christ. What does that sound like? Francis Chan just came out, um, I think this last week as well, after that announcement, and essentially said, what is going on? And he mentioned the number of friends that he has had in ministry over the years that have done the same thing. Um, the lead singer of Skillet has talked about that. Um, another Christian man. Um, I would look at that and say, that is a counterfeit faith. Many will be drawn to this man now. Oh, he was DC talk. I remember that. You know? And yeah, he's so woke now. You know? It's intended to deceive. It's a fake faith. When you abandon core, solid theological principles that are clearly spelled out in the scriptures, but you still say, but I love Jesus, you're a counterfeit. You're fake. Now that doesn't mean that you, the only way you can be a Christian is if your theology is perfect. We're not talking about that. We're talking about core, simple things that, have, that, that, that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's something that you choose to now abandon and walk away from and claim is no longer true. But still say, this is Christianity. We see much of that happening in the Christian church today. You've heard me talk time and time again about the prosperity gospel that is taught in so many churches today. What I mean by that is, it's not the prosperity gospel of the word faith movement, but it's this idea that it's all about us. It's very narcissistic. We go to church and we hear all these sermons on, on how to meet our felt needs and how Jesus is our giant bellhop and he's just there to serve all of our needs and make sure that we're happy and healthy and it just that's, 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 that's just a fake gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel. I think about the Apostle Paul I've been studying ahead, obviously, and I've been studying this week on the conversion of Saul. And what stands out to that passage is when he calls Paul, he basically just says, Paul, go hang out in Damascus for a little bit. I'll get you some instructions in a little while. And then he sends Ananias to him. And when Ananias is complaining to the Lord, saying, Lord, you don't know who this guy is. You really want me to go talk to him? The Lord says, I'm going to show him how much he will enjoy life. How great things are going to be. Financially, he'll be, he'll be happy and go luck. No, he says, I am going to teach him how much he will suffer for my name. That's the gospel. Anything else is counterfeit. And so, one of our takeaways from this is much like Simon, who's out there pretending to be some divine expression of the power of God, creating all these signs and wonders, developing this following, he was counterfeit. It was fake. Second takeaway is that Philip's miracles by themselves 
I don't believe were what caused people to abandon Simon and start listening to him. Notice that Luke starts in verse 12 with the word, but. But when they believed Philip, but what did they believe? It doesn't say, but when they saw the great signs and wonders Philip was doing, they decided to follow him. It says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus. The reason they were listening to Philip and why they had started leaving Simon was because of the truth that they were hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The signs and wonders were secondary for Philip. They always are in the scriptures. Because they're always used to authenticate the message and the messenger. And so, what moved these people from the counterfeit to the genuine was not just duplicating the signs and wonders. It was the fact that Philip was preaching the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, they were giving attention to what he said. It says, they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They recognized the counterfeit nature of Simon Simon, because they were presented with the truth. You know, you've heard this, this comment before, probably over and over, probably too many times in Christianity, about how they study counterfeit bills. And there's a little bit of truth to it, and it's not completely true, but... The, the way the analogy always goes is that when they're training people to recognize counterfeit bills, they don't have them look at counterfeit bills. They have them look at the real thing. And that's true, because if you can recognize the real thing, then anything that doesn't look like the real thing, you know it's fake. Otherwise, you've got to teach them everything fake, right? But everything changes out here, right? There's always some new way to do it. There's always a Frank Barusa who figures out how to make his bills look a lot more like the real thing. So if you really know the real thing, you can recognize the fake thing. Now they do study fake bills too. They do talk about fake counterfeiting things, so it's not completely true, but you get, you get the point there. The reason these people had started to abandon Simon, leave Simon, and start going towards Philip was because they were presented with the truth. They believed what he was saying about Jesus Christ. So the first contrast is between the counterfeit signs and wonders of Simon and the genuine nature of the signs and wonders performed by Philip that was pointing them to Jesus Christ. The second section of our passage here today, we're going to see Simon's counterfeit faith contrasted with the genuine faith of the Samaritans. We saw in verses 12 and 13 that not only did large numbers of Samaritans believe Philip's preaching, many of them got baptized But you notice that it says that Simon did as well. It says Simon believed and was baptized. Now, as clear as we go throughout this passage, the way that the Samaritans' faith is talked about, that their faith was genuine. They're rejoicing, they were baptized, they were receiving the Holy Spirit, we're told a little bit later. Um, There's no question about the Samaritans' salvation. This was genuine salvation. There is debate, however, over Simon. As to whether Simon's faith was genuine. Now, let me give you the argument why it might have been genuine. And what I mean by genuine was, did he have a real conversion? Did he really come to Jesus Christ? 
Was he really redeemed and regenerated and justified? Was he found in Christ? Reasons why is because the text says he believed. That'd be one reason. Okay? That sounds like he accepted Christ, right? The second reason might be that he continued on with Philip. You'll, you'll notice here in a little bit that he continued on, or I think it actually says it already, he started to follow um, Philip. And so some have argued, oh, clearly he must have been saved if he followed Philip. I've got another perspective on that. This was a man who was interested in the magic arts. He sees another individual come to town who's doing probably more miraculous things. It doesn't say that Simon was healing people, but now Philip is healing people, and we find out that Philip, or I'm sorry, Simon, would like a lot of those things. So another reason why he might have followed Philip was because he was enamored with him. He could learn some things. Okay, So just the fact that he followed Philip around, the fact that it says he believed, I don't believe is enough evidence that he was saved because there's plenty of stuff in the text that suggests otherwise. There's plenty of stuff in the text that suggests that Simon's faith was also counterfeit, just like his signs and wonders. The first thing you're going to notice here, we're going to look at verse 14, is that the Samaritans didn't immediately receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to build an argument for you here. The Samaritans did not immediately receive the Holy Spirit. And this is going to play an important role for us in determining Simon's genuine salvation. Look at verses 14 through 17. Now when they or when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the spirit. For they had not yet or for he had not yet fallen upon any of them and they simply had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So we have this rather unique event. Normally, the normative thing in the scriptures is that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. We have a couple of instances in the New Testament where that doesn't quite happen, but there's reasons for it. In other words, there's a reason why the Lord sort of delays it. In this particular instance here, it appears that because the Samaritans are an outside group, there would have been some question about the Lord's inclusion of them in his redemptive plan. We see the same thing happen later with the Gentiles when they don't receive the Holy Spirit immediately. And so what you have is basically the Lord delays the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans so that he might send Peter and John down as representatives of the apostles to actually watch the Holy Spirit incorporate them into the body of Christ. He does the same thing again with the Gentiles. It's a way of the Lord saying, okay, you all think Samaritans are outsiders, I'm including them, and here's the eyewitness account from Peter and John. Watching it take place as they lay their hands on them and they watch them receive the Spirit, they likely probably did things like speaking in tongues and some other things as evidence of that as it happened. Same thing again happens with the Gentiles later. And you notice Peter goes back and says, you know what, they got the Spirit just like we did back at Pentecost? That becomes the convincing factor that the Lord has included the Gentiles in the church. Same thing here with with the Samaritans. And so one of our first clues here is that when when they don't receive, you know, they, they, they had believed, they had been baptized, but it says they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus but hadn't received the Spirit yet, which means at this point they're not part of the body of Christ yet. That happens when the baptism of the Spirit takes place. And that only happens when Peter and John come down, and we're told here in verses 14 through 17, that they start to lay their hands on them, and as they do that, 
they began to receive the Holy Spirit. They were brought into the body of Christ. That's the confirmation of their salvation. Now you'll notice something else. Look at verses 18 through 19. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Do you notice something here? Simon's watching what's going on. Peter and John can only lay their hands on so many people at a time, and so they're going through and they're laying their hands on the Samaritans, and as they do this, they're all receiving the Holy Spirit as they're going through the line. And here's Simon watching this stuff happen. What does the text not tell us happens to Simon? There's no indication that he received the Holy Spirit. There's no indication that they laid their hands on him. Rather, in fact, there's no, there's no evidence that he even looks and says, I want the Spirit! It says he goes, oh, I want, I want to be able to do that. I want to lay my hand. Give me that so I can lay my hands on other people. In other words, I can continue business as usual. I can keep doing... Now this is just one more bag of tricks I can add to my arsenal as I go out. It's going to make me even greater. The text doesn't tell us that Simon received the Holy Spirit. So as he's watching the others receive, as he's watching Peter and John lay their hands on them, it appears that Simon is left out. In fact, that's exactly what we see in the text. Look at verses 20 through 22. The first evidence was that he didn't, the text doesn't tell us he received the Holy Spirit when it tells us the others did. The second bit of evidence that his faith wasn't genuine is what happens here with Simon, I mean with um with Peter's rebuke. Look at verses 20-23. through But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. means there was a money motive there. Simon still had a money motive. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So again, you thought you could obtain the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, with money. I mean, he hadn't received it yet because you can't get it by money. You have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Everything in those verses screams out that Simon wasn't a part of what was going on with the Spirit. Peter tells him outright, you don't have a portion And what's taking place? Well, what's taking place? The Holy Spirit's being poured out. Simon wants in on that because he's got money motives on his mind. And Peter says, nope, this isn't for you. And it's not for you because your heart's not in the right place. You're still in the bondage to sin and may your your silver perish with you. This is a stiff rebuke and a clear indicator that Simon's faith He believed his act of going through the water baptism wasn't genuine. No, I'm sure Simon probably felt it was. Why do it otherwise, right? But clearly it wasn't genuine because Peter tells him, your heart's not right, you're wicked, you're still in your bondage to your sins, and you don't have a portion in any of this. 
pretty clear that Simon hadn't received the Spirit. What was happening didn't involve him. He still had money matters on his mind. I think the last bit of evidence that Simon's faith was probably counterfeit was his own response. Look at verse 24. How would you expect him to reply? But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Sometimes there's as much said in silence as there is outright. What does Simon not say here? What does Simon not do here? Peter just said, You're wicked. Your heart's not right. Does Simon say, You're right. I am wicked. I should repent. No, he says, Oh, you you pray to God. You talk to him. And pray that what you just described is not going to happen. What did he just describe to him? The only thing that Peter just described that Simon could be concerned about is his silver perishing. So when Simon says, You pray to the Lord that what you just said doesn't come upon me, what he's saying is, You pray to the Lord, my silver doesn't perish. There's nothing in his response that indicates he gets a, has a clue about what faith really is. Everything up until this point is about just getting something to use to continue on in the same pattern of sorcery that he's been involved with ever since. Seeing what Philip can do with the Holy Spirit is just one more bag of tricks he can add to his arsenal to continue to deceive the people around him and make himself appear to be somebody great. Let me ask this. Do you think we see any of that in Christian circles? Do you think we see people use Christianity as a marketing tool, as a thing to make money, or to make themselves popular, to promote themselves? What's the takeaway? I'll make a bold statement. I think there's many today that have a counterfeit faith. They claim to believe in Jesus. They may have been baptized. They may go to church every Sunday morning. They may have gone to seminary. They may be up in the pulpits preaching every single Sunday. They may publish tons of books. But like Simon, they have no portion in what's going on. They're not a part of the body of Christ because their faith is counterfeit. Their hearts are not right. They refuse to repent of their iniquity. They're still in bondage to their sin. Now, I can't speak to the salvation of some of the people that I've mentioned over the weeks and months here now with those who are deconstructing their faith or those who have chosen to abandon some theological principles that the Bible makes very, very clear. But it does make us wonder, is their faith genuine? You know, I grew up in an age of what we called easy believism where we reduced the gospel down to just simply saying a sinner's prayer. And we considered that all you've got to do is say that sinner's prayer and you're saved. And we totally ignore the fact that the scriptures describe a change in life, a change in character, a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man. And we've, we've, we've sold this false gospel that all you've got to do is pray that prayer and you're good. Now, I came to Christ by praying a sinner's prayer. But within a matter of just a week or two, I recognized 
there's more to this than I expected because I began to see the Lord actually do some things in my life. And so I tell people, I, I think I actually got saved one night, but within a matter of weeks it became true and solid and, and convinced me. And that's the moment when I chose because for the first two weeks I didn't do anything other than just pray to accept Christ and go on about my life. But like I said, about two weeks later, I began to realize and dawn on me some things that were going on that God was doing. And I went, oh, and at that moment, I shared this story before, I went and I found the guy that shared the gospel with me, knocked on the door, found him in a friend's room. As soon as I walked through that door, before I could even say anything to him, he said, you got saved, didn't you? Um, how'd you know? And he's like, I could see God make some changes in your life. And I said, well, do you know when? And he said, about two weeks ago which is about when I prayed. Now, so I don't want to discount or discredit telling people to pray and to say a sinner's prayer, but when we reduce the gospel down to, oh, all that's necessary, just come as you are and just say the sinner's prayer and you're saved. Or when somebody says, you know, boy, do you know if he was saved or she was saved? Their life sure doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, they they said a sinner's prayer. I, I was there. Even though there's nothing in their life that represents Christ. And we go, yeah, because they said that sinner's prayer. It's counterfeit. I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable telling somebody, oh, as long as you prayed that prayer, you're, you're, you're okay. I don't want to challenge them on, well, what's your life like today? You may have done that, and maybe you were saved, but... Where's the reflection of that? Where's the new man that we're promised? Where's the desire to love, serve, commit oneself to suffer for Christ? Where is that? And so when I find somebody who's been a Christian leader, whether it be in music or other things, that starts to deconstruct their faith and start saying things that run completely contrary to the scriptures or clearly is promoting themselves, a number of pastors that have been kicked out of ministry in one church because of committing adultery. And next thing you know, a year later, they're starting a new church somewhere else and people are following them. And I'm like, is this about you, dude? So there are many today who have counterfeit faith. They may look like the genuine thing. They may look real. But that doesn't make it real. You know, I just saw an article recently. In fact, this is funny. I, was, I met with Dustin to do some studying a couple days ago. Just a short time ago, a couple of weeks ago. Seattle Pacific University, it's, I think, one of the oldest Christian universities in the nation. It's been around for about 130 years. It's in Washington State. Um, the faculty, or not the faculty, the board had just upheld in a statement the biblical teaching on sexuality in the school's employee handbook and its hiring practices. They just wanted to confirm this is what we believe. One man, one woman. 72% of the faculty got together and did a vote of no confidence for their board for that purpose. 72% of the faculty at a Christian university basically says, we think you are unfit to lead because you support biblical marriage and sexuality. Does that make you wonder a little bit? how many of those individuals might be living a counterfeit faith when they reject something that is so clear? I'm not talking about those more difficult, touchy issues in Scripture. You know, the timing of the rapture maybe, or, you know, 
that type of thing. But what was funny about it is Dustin picked up his phone, he sent a text real fast. I'm like, what's he doing? 30 seconds later he goes, oh yeah, one of my good buddies teaches there. <laughs> and he said, he was there during this issue. And, his, and students started to call him out, demanding to know where he stood on that issue. Because in their mind, he should side with the 72%. So Dustin said, yeah, his friend had to find a way to basically tell students, look, you know what, I'm here to teach the Bible. Don't try to trap me into figuring out which issue I... Just, I'm here to teach the Bible. He refused to... And it wasn't that he refused to take a stand. It was more this idea of, I'm not going to fall into your trap of trying to, you know, am I woke enough to be here, whatever. But so it's just kind of interesting, the, the connection there. I think I've alluded to this many, many times, probably way too many times. Many churches today, I think, are preaching a counterfeit gospel and promoting a counterfeit Christianity. Um... It's kind of disheartening to look around and see what's happening in our churches and universities. Um, A bit of warning. Jesus, um, as he was talking about separating the sheets and goats, Matthew 24 and 25, describes two groups of people. And both of these groups of people think they're saved. (laughs) One with less um, confidence in the other, meaning they saw themselves as wondering for sure, um, but they were the ones ultimately that Jesus said, well, you you know, your faith was genuine. In other words, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. But the other group are the more arrogant, proud ones that are like, well, Jesus, we did all these things for you. We did this, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. And Jesus looks at them and says, what? I didn't know you. You may think you were working in my name. You may think you did all these great things. You may think you were saved. I didn't know you. The churches in the book of Revelation, the very few first few chapters, the seven churches he addresses there, go back and read some of those. And look at how he addresses those churches with serious, stern warnings. Talking about removing their lampstand. There are some serious challenges in the scriptures about genuine faith. Paul at one point even says that um, we're to test ourselves and see if we're in the faith. Why would he do that? Because we're prone to be deceived. And so as we look at this passage today, one of the things that really stands out to me is this this interesting contrast. Dustin and I talked about, why would Luke record this? Why would he put this? Well, sometimes it's hard to know with narrative why things are put in there because they just look like maybe it's a historical thing, you know? But there's usually a motive or a reason why an author includes something. And as we've seen through the book of Acts, We've seen Luke include some things that pose challenges to the church as it's exploding with its growth. Things like the persecution, but also some internal things. You remember the the internal struggle with Ananias and Sapphira. This is a different Ananias. Where, you know, the struggle for that was the self-promotion within the church. And God deals with it. Why? Because it's a huge threat to the church when people act with selfish motives and it's all about them. You know? Um, 
So anyway, through the book of Acts, there are these things that Luke kind of includes, I believe, to kind of give us a warning. This is damaging and dangerous to the church. Sometimes these things come from within. And so he just sort of very subtly provides us some glimpses as to what some of these threats are to the church, whether it be the you know, self-promotion like Ananias and Sapphira or the infighting that happened over the widows. And now we have another one, which is somebody who wants into the church for all the wrong reasons. It's all fake. It's all counterfeit. And we have Peter's response, which is that you don't have a portion. If your heart's not right, if you're unwilling to repent, if you're still caught in the bondage of your own sins, there is no portion of this for you. He calls them out. He expects repentance. Expects the proper kind of heart. And so as I think as we look around the church today, the, the probably the greatest takeaway for me as I look at this is just the reminder um, about the importance of genuine faith. Being careful with counterfeit faith. And I think it applies to each one of us. I, I routinely look at myself and I fall into the trap maybe of going, how do I know? Well, the scriptures tell me what's required. But I grew up Catholic, which kind of has that work mentality, you know. So I might sometimes fall into that opposite side, that I ought to be doing more to know that I'm saved, but I know that's not true. But it sure beats the opposite, which is, I'm just okay because I go to church, or I'm just okay because I wear a Christian t-shirt that says Jesus loves me on it, or I listen to Christian music all the time, or I just, whatever. Um, We have to be careful with counterfeits. Just like we have to be careful with the counterfeit teaching. There's so much today that floats around in the church that's just counterfeit, fake teaching. It sounds good. The whole Jesus calling stuff. You know, oh, it sounds great. I can read it and it moves my heart and makes me feel emotional and all tingly. It's counterfeit. So we have to be on the lookout. And again, so I think it's partly why Luke includes things like this. It's just a warning to us about what God expects. And so let's be careful with counterfeit faith, whether it's our own or whether it's what we watch and see in others what we see in the church. Amen?